Hello and welcome to this podcast on the implications of Brexit for choice of law, jurisdiction and the enforcement of judgments. I'm Anna Pratoldi and I'm a litigation partner here at Herbert Smith Freehills. have with me Maura McIntosh, who's a professional support consultant in the litigation team. Between us, we've spent quite a lot of time in the past three and a half years or so thinking about what Brexit means, in particular for English jurisdiction clauses and the enforcement of English judgments around the EU, which will be our main focus today, although we'll also touch on choice of law towards the end. So, don't be surprised to no one listening that the UK left the EU on 31st of January 2020 under the terms of a withdrawal agreement agreed between Boris Johnson's government and the EU. And while that agreement is quite different in a number of respects from the initial version of the withdrawal agreement that was concluded by Theresa May's government, those differences really don't affect the issues we're discussing today. The withdrawal agreement establishes a transition period to the end of the year. That's called an implementation period in the UK legislation, but we're going to stick with the term transition period. The withdrawal agreement provides that the transition period can be extended for up to one or two years by agreement before 1st July, but the UK government is adamant that there won't be an extension. So in this podcast, we're assuming the transition period will end as planned on 31st December 2020. At that point, what happens in relation to disputes in many other areas will depend largely on what, if anything, is agreed between the UK and the EU in the interim subject to certain transitional provisions in the withdrawal agreement that will continue to have effect after the transition period itself comes to an end, as we'll come on to. Now, in terms of what could be agreed between the UK and the EU in this area, the most likely would seem to be an agreement for the UK to join the Lugano Convention in its own right. That convention applies between EU member states and EFTA countries, Iceland, Norway and Switzerland, and contains provisions that are similar, though not identical, to the rules of the RECAS Brussels Regulation, which of course applies between EU member states. So, if the UK joins Lugano, then little will change in relation to jurisdiction and enforcement as between the UK and both the EU and these EFTA countries. Exclusive English jurisdiction clauses will generally be respected, and English judgments will be easily enforceable in all of these countries. The UK has recently announced that it remains committed to joining Lugano in its own right, and that it's received statements of support from Iceland, Norway and Switzerland, which is a promising sign. But the UK's accession also requires agreement from the EU, and separately from Denmark, which has an opt-out in respect of justice and home affairs matters under relevant EU treaties. So, for the purposes of today's podcast, we're going to look at what happens if the UK doesn't join Lugano. But clearly, if it does, particularly if it does so by the end of the transition period, then the various difficulties and uncertainties we'll look at won't materialise. So, with those preliminary points out of the way, Maura is going to take us through the position during the transition period and after the transition period itself ends, but where certain transitional provisions in the withdrawal agreement continue to have effect. And then we'll look at the position where those transitional provisions don't apply. So, Maura, can you take us through those transitional stages? 
Yes, thanks, Anna. Um, taking the transition period itself first, so that's till the end of the year, assuming no extension. Uh, during that period, under the terms of the withdrawal agreement, EU law will generally continue to apply to and in the UK, and any reference to EU member states in EU law will be understood as including the UK. EU law for these purposes includes the international agreements to which the EU is party. So on on any basis, very little should change between now and the 31st of December this year. Uh, The UK courts will continue to apply EU law and the rules on jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments under the recast Brussels regulation will continue to apply as between the UK and the EU. The UK will also continue to comply with obligations stemming from international agreements relating to jurisdiction and the enforcement of judgments, and of course other international agreements to which the EU is party. Under the withdrawal agreement, the EU has to notify the other parties to these agreements that the UK is to be treated as an EU member state for these purposes during the transition period. Now, for our purposes, the relevant agreements are the Lugano Convention, which we've mentioned, uh, which is relevant to EFTA countries, Iceland, Norway and Switzerland, and the 2005 Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements, which we'll come back to. Um, Hague applies at the moment only between the EU member states, including for these purposes the UK on the one hand, and Mexico, Singapore and Montenegro on the other but it could become quite significant as between the UK and the EU after the end of the transition period. So at least assuming that none of the contracting states to Lugano or Hague object to the EU's notice that the UK is to continue to be treated as an EU member state for these purposes, um, those countries' courts should continue to give effect to exclusive English jurisdiction clauses and to enforce English judgments at least at the end of the transition period. What about after the end of the transition period? Well, under the transitional provisions in the withdrawal agreement, the rules on both jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments under the recast Brussels regulation will continue to apply as between the UK and the EU in cases where proceedings were commenced before the end of the transition period. So, for example, the English courts will continue to apply those rules to enforce French judgments so long as the proceedings leading to that judgment were commenced before the 31st of December, and the French courts will do likewise in respect of English judgments where the proceedings were commenced before that date. The same doesn't necessarily apply as between the UK and the EFTA countries we mentioned, as there is no agreement setting out similar transitional provisions for the Lugano Convention. The point isn't dealt with in the UK EEA EFTA separation agreement, Um, But it's likely that the the UK, anyway, will continue to apply Lugano, where proceedings were commenced in one of the relevant EFTA countries before the end of the transition period. That that is what the UK was planning to do if there was a a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of January, so it seems very likely it will do the same from the end of transition if there's no separate agreement reached on uh, the UK joining Lugano. But it's just not clear at the moment whether the EFTA countries will reciprocate. Thanks, Maura. So then the obvious question is what happens if those transitional provisions don't apply? And that's when things start to get more complicated and to some extent uncertain. As I said earlier, it will depend on whether any further arrangements are agreed, such as for the UK to rejoin Lugano, but we'll assume for present purposes that doesn't happen. In those circumstances, the 2005 Hague Convention becomes quite significant. 
The UK will accede to Hague in its own right from the end of the transition period, and it doesn't need anyone's agreement to do so. Once that happens, judgments will be enforced between the UK and the other Hague contracting states. So that's all EU countries, Mexico, Singapore and Montenegro. If judgment was given pursuant to an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of a UK court or the courts of another contracting state. Hague only applies to exclusive jurisdiction clauses and and that's obviously a, a pretty significant limitation particularly as exclusive for these purposes doesn't include unilateral or one-way jurisdiction clauses that are quite common, particularly in certain finance contexts. Uh, And I should say as well that there are some restrictions on scope. So, for example, Hague doesn't apply to employment and consumer contracts. Another significant limitation to Hague is that it only applies if the exclusive jurisdiction clause was entered into after the convention came into force for the country whose courts are chosen. Now, when it comes to exclusive jurisdiction clauses in favour of UK courts, including, of course, England and Wales, that gives rise to some uncertainty. The UK first became a party to Hague in October 2015 by virtue of its EU membership. That ceased on Brexit, though, as we've said, the UK and the EU have agreed that the UK is to be treated as an EU member state for the purposes of Hague and other international agreements during the transition period. And the UK will accede to Hague in its own right from, as we understand it, 1st of January 2021. So, for exclusive English jurisdiction clauses agreed on or after 1st January next year, the position is straightforward. They clearly fall within Hague and so EU member state courts should generally respect such clauses and enforce the resulting judgments under Hague, as should Mexico, Singapore and Montenegro, the other contracting states to Hague. Not, I should say, the EFTA countries, Iceland, Norway and Switzerland, they're not party to Hague. Even where Hague applies, there is a slight wrinkle in relation to issues of jurisdiction where there's no party domiciled in the UK or another non-EU Hague contracting state so, for example, if all parties are EU domiciled. In those circumstances, Article 26.6 of the Hague Convention provides that the Brussels regime takes precedence, and there's some uncertainty as to whether, under that regime, EU courts will have the power to stay proceedings or decline jurisdiction in favour of the English court, a non-EU court, unless the English proceedings were commenced first in time where there's an express power. There are conflicting authorities on this and the most recent English Court of Appeal decision suggests this may not in fact be a problem, but it's an uncertainty. Though only in relation to questions of jurisdiction, not enforcement of judgments, which is not affected. What about where there's an exclusive jurisdiction clause agreed before 1st January 2021? Well, the position then is more complicated as it's possible that EU member states may treat the Hague Convention as having been enforced for the UK only from when it rejoins on 1st of January 2021, a risk we've referred to as the change of status risk. On the face of it, it's difficult to see why the relevant date shouldn't be October 2015 when the UK first became a party to Hague. However, there have been some indications that the EU might not see it that way. 
So, Mark, can you talk us through the position of Hague doesn't apply? Yes, uh, sure. And just just to clarify, first of all, there could be a, a number of reasons that Hague doesn't apply. It, it could be because of the risks that we've just talked about, or it could be because there's a, a jurisdiction clause which is non-exclusive or unilateral, or which was agreed before October 2015 when Hague came into effect for the EU, uh, including the UK, or it could simply be because there's there's just no jurisdiction clause. Um, and in all of those circumstances, in considering questions of jurisdiction and enforcement as between the UK and an EU member state, the relevant courts will generally apply their own rules. Uh, when it comes to the English courts, in most cases, that means the common law rules. Uh, so in general terms, the English court will respect an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of another country and will enforce money judgments given in other countries subject to limited exceptions. Um, but so far as enforcement of English judgments in the EU is concerned, uh, well, most EU countries will enforce foreign judgments even without a specific reciprocal regime, um, but there are some exceptions and the type of judgment that's enforced may be more limited and the procedures may be more time-consuming and, of course, more expensive. And as Anna mentioned, there may be some question marks around whether EU member state courts will be able to give effect to an exclusive English jurisdiction clause as a clause in favour of a non-EU country, particularly where proceedings were started in the EU member state court before they were started in England. Okay, thanks. So, so that obviously complicates matters for commercial parties deciding now, during transition, what dispute resolution clause to include in their contracts. Can you give some thoughts on the best approach? Yes, um, I think the best approach is to think about what dispute resolution clause you would normally go for, absent Brexit considerations, and then think about whether the issues we've discussed means you should uh, rethink that particularly if your usual option would be an exclusive English jurisdiction clause. The key question is whether you will or might need to enforce any judgment given pursuant to that clause in an EU member state or in one of the EFTA countries we've mentioned. Um, that, that might not be necessary, even, even if the counterparty is based in the EU. There could be assets in England that you can enforce against or in another country where you know enforcement will be straightforward. Or, of course, you might hold security. But if you may need to enforce in an EU or EFTA country, then you should consider whether you'll be able to enforce under their local laws in a worst case scenario where no further arrangements are agreed and and Hague doesn't apply. Uh, and I think if there are difficulties or if the position's uncertain, then you may wish to go for a different dispute resolution option, such as perhaps a, a non-exclusive English jurisdiction clause or a unilateral or one-way clause in your favour if you can negotiate that so that the counterparty has to sue in England, but you have flexibility. Now, neither of those options, uh, non-exclusive or unilateral clauses, uh, neither of them will give you the benefit of Hague, but given the uncertainties as to whether Hague applies even to exclusive clauses entered into during transition, that might be a price worth paying for the added flexibility. Um, other options include an arbitration clause. Uh, arbitration is unaffected by Brexit, and so arbitration awards will continue to be enforceable under the New York Convention in all EU member states. 
Or, of course, you could opt for a jurisdiction clause in favour of the country where the assets are located, whether that's on an exclusive or non-exclusive basis, uh, though if the contract is still going to be governed by English law rather than the local law of that jurisdiction, there could be additional costs involved since you'll have to prove the content of English law in any proceedings. And I suppose there may perhaps be more scope for errors where the court is applying a foreign law as well. Um, if your contract has already been entered into with an exclusive English jurisdiction clause, then something you might want to think about is restating the clause after the 1st of January 2021 so that you can be more confident of the clause falling within Hague. In other words, that you can avoid the change of status risk. Now, obviously, that will only be possible if the counterparty agrees and it won't be necessary if some other arrangement has come into effect by then, such as for the UK to, to, to rejoin Lugano. Okay, so finally, shall we talk a bit about choice of law? Can can you explain what, if anything, is going to change on that front? Well, the answer is that very little will change, even where the transitional provisions under the withdrawal agreement do not apply. So under the withdrawal agreement, the, um, the rules on the law applicable to contractual obligations under the Rome 1 regulation will continue to apply to all contracts concluded before the end of the transition period, and the rules on the law applicable to non-contractual obligations under Rome 2 will continue to apply to events giving rise to damage before the end of the transition period. But in any event, the UK is incorporating the Rome 1 and Rome 2 rules into English law, uh, and so even ignoring these transitional provisions, the English courts will continue to apply the same rules to determine the law which applies to a dispute. And uh, in terms of what rules the EU courts will apply, well, they'll continue to apply Rome 1 and Rome 2. Um, so they'll continue to give effect to a choice of English law or indeed any other law to the same extent as currently. And as for the rules applied by non-EU courts or arbitration, arbitration tribunals, those won't be affected by Brexit. So really the position on, on, on choice of law is, is quite straightforward, thankfully. Okay, well, that's the end of today's podcast. Thank you, Maura. Thank you uh, to you for listening. If you would like further reading on these issues, there are links on the podcast page to the Brexit category of our Litigation Notes blog, as well as our Brexit blog, where we publish on Brexit-related issues more widely, and to our Brexit Legal Guide, which contains most of the information we've discussed today in the dispute section, as well as information on how many other areas are affected by Brexit.